Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's been almost axiomatic to say that so many of the problems that plague men in our society today stem from changes in economics, that technology, globalization, education, or lack thereof are all at the core of the problem. Yet regardless of who we give credit to, unemployment is at the lowest it's been in 50 years. American manufacturing is relatively strong. Sure, things have changed with respect to jobs and the economy and pay, but clearly other forces are at play for the men of America. The result is not just the Me Too movement, but a fundamental redefinition of the idea of masculinity. Oftentimes, pop culture gives us insight into the human condition. As we watch the rise and fall and transformation of Don Draper and Tony Soprano tried to get in touch with his feelings, perhaps we saw precursors of what's happening in America today. The problem is that the cost to the country and to our communities is very high. We're gonna talk about this with my guest, Andrew Yarrow. He's a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's been a New York Times reporter, a Labor Department speechwriter, and a U.S. history professor at American University. He's been affiliated with Brookings and the Aspen Institute, and he writes frequently for the national media. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Yarrow here to talk about his new book, Man Out, Men on the Sidelines of American Life. Andrew Yarrow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. One of the things uh, that's important, I think, to understand, and you talk about this in Man Out, is that it's too easy when we think about the problems that men are facing today to sort of look at it just in political terms, that this isn't a problem just of the culture or a problem just of the economy, that it's somehow more complex than that. That's right. Um, I argue in the book that um, there's an interplay between uh, culture and economics and, and with a number of different variables at play, ranging from the health of men, men's attitudes toward women, uh, issues and problems with fatherhood, uh, men at work or not at work, uh, and other other issues. So um, I also argue, too, that in discussing the book, that while so much attention has been paid to the uh, white working class, that uh, a significant part of the uh, Trump political base. And with the Kavanaugh hearings, these privileged prep school grads, that men who are struggling really encompass a lot of other groups, including uh, men higher up the socioeconomic scale, uh, over 50 or 55, uh, formerly incarcerated men, and millennial men who are especially struggling. Actually, all of them are. How, how much of this, in your view, is as a result of changes that have affected or that are internal in terms of, of coming from men as opposed to it being reactive to the changes that have taken place for women since the early 90s? Well, I, I think it's hard to separate the two. Um, there are long been you know, ideas of what masculinity should be in the U.S. and in the Western world. You know, the traditional notion that many people call toxic masculinity, that a man should be tough, a man should never show emotions, a man should have as many sexual partners as possible. 
And at the same time, you know, men are confronted with a very different, more progressive view of manhood, uh, in part brought about by the feminist movement. And it's left many men confused, uh, unsure of what, what role they should play. In your view, why has that happened? What was, what was the missing element that created that insecurity and that confusion for men? Well, I think there are a lot of things at play. Um, it was striking that, you know, the several hundred men I interviewed for this book, uh, I often heard the comment that, you know, uh, feminine feminism has done a lot of good for, for women, but what has it done for men? Or it's left us kind of confused. And... Um, as you mentioned at the outset, I mean, there are economic issues that are very real. Um, despite uh, the low official unemployment rate, the labor force participation rate is also very low. In other words, the number of uh, adult men actually working is the percentage is lower than it's really ever been, or it's near that low. So you know, you have 18% of men uh, between 25 and 64 not working, and larger percentages if you go into the lower 20s and upper 60s. You mentioned that this is happening in in large areas of, of millennials. Talk about that, because I think that, that will come as a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, millennial men are are considerably more likely than millennial women uh, to be living at home. I mean, we've all heard about the phenomenon of uh, boomerang kids or, um, you know, kids coming to sleep in their parents' basement and have their moms make them breakfast. Um, but uh, it's really a more gendered issue. Men are struggling much more with this. Um, Men are also, millennial men are also less likely to work than men of their age in generations past. And some of this is an overhang of the Great Recession that they um, kind of grew up at the wrong time. But there are also cultural factors affecting millennial men. I mean, this is a generation that grew up with... Um, online media, uh, gaming, and there are an awful lot of hardcore male gamers. Uh, some studies have uh, suggested that, you know, some of the men who are not, young men who are not working are sort of substituting uh, almost one for one the time with staying at home and gaming. So there are a lot of, a lot of factors. I mean, I could talk, too, about... Uh, drugs and alcohol and addiction, uh, you know, men are uh, twice as likely to overdose on uh, heroin, opioids, uh, yeah. and yeah, and even uh, this kind of ranges into all men, but it's a big uh, issue for younger men. Suicide rates have been going up, and they're about three and a half times uh, the rate for women among men. So, I mean, a lot of factors here. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about 
education and the role that plays. We see more and more women, millennial women in, in particular, going to college. Talk a little bit about what's happening within the educational realm that is somehow fueling this. Yes. Now, that's an excellent uh, point, Jeff. Uh, over the years, uh, the proportion of men in higher education has declined sharply, and the proportion of women naturally has risen to the point that today about 58% of college graduates are women. And in some of the classes I've taught at American University, it comes closer to 70% women. And there's also a lot of evidence that boys in K through 12 don't do as well academically, that they have more behavior problems. And some of this stems from other issues uh, that many have decried, like the abolition of uh, PE or the truncating of recess. There's sort of not a place for boys to go out and just get off that energy. Um, and there's also some evidence that there may be some bias against boys uh, in K through 12. As one study, uh, a blind study, showed that uh, teachers graded boys a bit higher when they didn't know their gender. So, but clearly, um, clearly, boys and young men are not doing well in the educational field. What's changed? Why is that the case? Or was this, a lot of this, always lurking below the surface? And because of male privilege, because of male entitlement, because of patriarchy, even in K through 12, it didn't really begin to express itself until changes started to take place for women in the early 90s. That's true. Um, I think... A lot of things were at play. I mean, the influence of, of feminism and in the broader culture, the acceptance of uh, women in the workplace, the, um, you know, the sense that, um, you know, women could be just as good as, if not better, than men in, in colleges. And I think a lot of things brought us to this point. Um, and, you know, perhaps, well, not perhaps, but another big issue is the soaring cost of higher education. Well, on balance, you would think that that would affect uh, boys and girls, men and women, mm -hmm. equally. But I think, you know, a lot of young men feel that, uh, you know, they may start college, but they really are more likely to be floundering these days. So they're more likely to, to drop out. And, you know, there's a big population of so-called NEETs, not in employment, education, and training, uh, people between 16 and 24. And uh, there are a lot of men in that population. Mm -hmm. One of the other things you talk about is the impact that this is having on our communities and the country at large. Talk about that. Sure, sure. Um, well, there, there are many angles into that, and the issues of masculinity and toxic masculinity are one, uh, which you know we certainly see in the Kavanaugh affair, and I can talk about a bit more, but something less 
focused on is the decline of male participation in civic groups and community life. Uh, decades ago, you used to have groups like the Rotary, the Elks, etc. You know, the drew, and labor unions, for that matter, that drew together lots of men. And those institutions have all pretty much cratered. And as far as civic organizations have only really stayed alive, many men told me, who are in Rotary, because courts forced the admission of women in the late 80s. And uh, as one guy said to me, you know, women do most of the work in our Rotary Club. So this kind of declining, um, you know, sociability, participation, and uh, organizations, it's uh, worked for various causes for the public good has been a factor. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the men that are not suffering, the ones that are successful today, and and what we can learn from that. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, that's a very interesting point. As I say in my book, most men are not struggling, are not men out. Uh, I estimate that uh, by various measures, probably one in five adult men, there are about 20 million adult men, uh, fall into this category of men out. But that means that four out of five don't. And among those, you know, some are doing okay, and some are doing spectacularly well. Um, as you know, inequality has been increasing significantly over the last few decades in the U.S. And just looking at millennials again, there's an interesting stat that I found. In 1975, about 25% of millennia, people of millennial age uh, or men of millennial age were below the poverty level, and today it's about 40% below the poverty level. But at the other end of the spectrum, in 1975, only about 2.7 or 2.9% of men, uh, young men, were earning over the equivalent of uh, today's $100,000. Whereas today, you have uh, close to 6% of men, a near doubling, sort of at the high end. And uh, so in short, I mean, there are a lot of men doing extremely well. There are some men doing extremely well, a lot of men doing uh, pretty decently, and then a large minority who aren't. Given that so many are doing well, why aren't there more of them that are serving as role models? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I think uh, one big piece of it is this, the extent to which this is a, a class-based issue. Um, even though, as I said, there are many people, many men higher up the socioeconomic spectrum who've quit jobs, been pushed out of jobs, aren't working, are, are lonely, may, you know, their marriages may have fallen apart. But um, this huge number of uh, men in rural America, small town America, uh, you know, are kind of invisible uh, to 
those, the talking class, the political class, and similarly, another huge population that's kind of invisible are formerly incarcerated men. Because of um, mass incarceration in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, uh, we have about at least 17 million men who were once in prison. And for them, uh, jobs are hard to find. It's hard to reconnect with family if, if there is family. And it's hard to make new friends or other connections. So many of the people who are struggling are, are not even visible. Is this resulting in, in a kind of anger that also has consequences? Oh, absolutely. Um, we certainly see it uh, with uh, the bitter debate over the Kavanaugh hearing uh, nomination. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a lot of misogyny out there. Uh, the Internet has particularly facilitated this, um, as we've seen again with Kavanaugh. And I don't want to dwell on that, but... You know, there are a lot of men who anonymously say pretty vile things, uh, said to Dr. Ford, but have said to female journalists, have said to, uh, you know, women in their lives, uh, ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, others. Uh, there's revenge porn out there. There's sexting. So... You know, there's a kind of roiling culture or subculture of, of men who are conveying a lot of pretty vile things. And then at the far extreme is this world uh, known as the manosphere, where, you know, men believe that uh, they're the ones who've been shafted, that uh, they're the victims and women have been the victimizers. And you know, we, these men, need to get back at them, which is very sad. And how is that playing itself out? Well, I mean, it's playing itself out in a lot of ways. As I say, the there's the, this rampant misogyny on the Internet. I mean, you see this kind of anger in politics as well. Um, back in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was first elected, uh, or just before that, men and women tended to vote pretty equally for the Democrats and Republicans. In 2016, there was a 24-point gender gap. So, you know, as we go into this election cycle, we see a lot of angry men, and I think we're going to see a lot more polarization between uh, many men and women, as, you know, many men feel that they've been shafted. And men would tell me that, you know, they're angry at employers and the economic system, they're angry at government, and they're angry at women. And they sort of blame their circumstances on all four. As we look at all of the, the anger that exists about this, and you add it to all the other social and political and class divides that we have in the country today, you know, is this just another layer of division to all of that? 
I think it is. And, you know, I think it certainly intersects with a lot of other divisions, class divisions, clearly political divisions, uh, geographical uh, divisions. That, uh, and it, it doesn't paint a, a pretty picture for the future unless, you know, unless they're really <laughs> good and strong attempts to um, address some of these issues for men, but address many issues for men and women uh, in an economy where wages have been stagnant for about the bottom 80%. Yeah for many years. Talk a little bit about what you have seen and what your reporting tells you with respect to the reactions of women to what's taking place with these men. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And um, if it weren't so sad, some of the stories would be funny. You know, I talked with a number of um, ex-wives who had very choice words to say about... Uh, the former men in their lives, uh, including some upper-middle-class professional women whose husbands had been professional. And, you know, these guys maybe became disenchanted with their jobs and quit. Maybe they were downsized. Maybe these men thought that they would create the next big thing or rape write the next, uh, the great American novel. And, you know, a lot of these guys stopped working. And, uh, you know, for these women, you know, they found their husbands increasingly retreating, uh, truly and metaphorically into the basement where, uh, a number of them found their husbands, you know, trolling on the internet late at night, drinking heavily, you know, um, hooking up with with women, looking at pornography, and you know, hence a lot of um, <laughs> disdain for their yes. ex-husbands. And then, you know, in the whole dating world, there's kind of two attitudes among women, uh, frustrated women. I mean, there are obviously many women and men who want good relationships, but there's some women who feel that, um, you know, there just aren't enough good men out there that either they have to trade down, so to speak, or they say they don't need men. Um, and on the other hand, women find uh, in a lot of cases on online dating sites that Men are just out there uh, trolling. Talk a little bit about ways in which you see solutions to any of this. I mean, as you talk to people, men and women alike, where where is the way out of any of this? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And as I say in my book, there we really need to approach these problems from both a policy point of view and from a cultural standpoint. You know, in terms of policy, I think we need to do a lot more to create good jobs, provide training opportunity, more training opportunities, um, especially for um, 
kind of middle skill jobs, which are the ones that have um, largely disappeared. Uh, you know, in the with globalization, with um, automation, with with robots, I think there need to be things like public works programs that could employ men. I think in terms of the civic piece and even the skills piece, there's a good case to be made for uh, mandatory national service. Um, I talked with a number of army recruiters and uh, basic training commanders who felt that you know, a lot of the men who wanted to get into the Army are just, you know, not qualified. They're not smart enough. They're not physically fit. And so, and and they supported national service civilian as well as military that, you know, people, it would help a lot of guys as well as women to have uh, this kind of opportunity to serve the country and see that there's something bigger beyond them. Um, and then, you know, one can go out down into the weeds of issues like tax policy, mm-hmm. um, not to go on and on, but, you know, the earned income tax credit uh, is not applicable to um, uh, non-custodial fathers. It's not applicable to men uh, are open to men under 25, that should be changed. One of the other questions is, is the impact of popular culture on all of this and the way in which so much of it today is almost self-reinforcing. Yeah, now that, that's an excellent point. You know, as we see in popular culture and in a lot of pop music pretty vulgar lyrics about women, um, not to single out any pop musicians, but there there are songs out there that uh, very crudely depict rape and assault as if this is kind of a normative thing to do or something that a manly man should do. And, you know, we see also in the pop, in popular culture, while there's still strong male heroes, and it's great that we have strong uh, female heroes in a lot of movies and TV men are kind of the butt of jokes are depicted as bumbling and you know kind of the Kramer like guy from Seinfeld and um, in a way that you know it would be pretty politically incorrect to, to um, portray women and um Gosh, I mean, there are a lot of things in, in popular culture, too. I mean, women singing songs about how we don't need, need men. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's had a huge influence and the uh, change in standards of what uh, what can be in the movies, on TV, you know, not, not to be, sound like a prude, but... Um, you know, having more and more sh- scenes of um, sex where men are, you know, essentially the the aggressors, uh, not always, but 
all too often the aggressors uh, uh, don't think helps much at all. I mean, in a way, we're we're paying the price for a thousand plus years of patriarchy, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, I like to point out that, um, you know, on the average, women in America and th- throughout the world still have it worse, still get the short end of the stick when it uh, comes to pay, to rights, uh, etc. But, you know, the fact that, you know, women are st- do still... Uh, have it worse or discriminated against doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't look at other populations, i.e., this um, these men out who are also struggling and suffering. Um, you know, I like to compare it to you know there is a lot of poverty, dire poverty in a place like Bangladesh, but that doesn't mean we should ignore the poverty in the U.S. Andrew Yarrow, his book is Man Out, Men on the Sidelines of American Life, just out from Brookings Press. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's, it's really been a pleasure talking thank, with you. Thank you.